<laughs> okay, this morning, we are on Hebrews 7, verse 19. Welcome, uh, newcomers. Nice to have you with us. This, what we do uh, in this class, as we're studying through Hebrews, and we go verse by verse by verse, we look up cross-references, and we uh, are basically practicing Acts 2.42, where it says they uh, fellowshiped around the apostles' teaching and prayer and breaking bread. And so what we're doing is opening up the teaching of the apostles and looking into it to understand the great salvation that is being spoken of. And that's definitely the topic here. Hebrews 7 is about Jesus as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, and on the other hand there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. This morning's topic that I want to emphasize is drawing near to God. And this is so essential. We're going to be discussing this actually at our conference on November 6th. We're going to be talking about it on the radio. I was just talking with Brian Flynn. I had supper with him the other night and we talked about this. And I think that a lot of the things that are getting people into trouble is a failure to understand that you can't get any closer to God than you will through Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of temptation to try these man-made techniques to try to get close to God. But the Bible is very clear about how we draw near to God. And it isn't through meditative uh, techniques. It's not through altered states of consciousness. It's not through doing some 40-day program. But it's through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Yes, Keith. Yeah, that's a very good point. And in fact, we should discuss that. Drawing near to God, does that necessarily make you feel like you're close to God? Not necessarily. You can't trust it. There's a lot of people who feel close to God that are uh, practicing Buddhists and Hindus. They feel close to God, but it doesn't mean that they are. So we need some objective understanding of how we can be close to God. And the Bible says... That the, because remember when Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It says in Hebrews that Jesus entered into the heavenly sanctuary, that his blood was poured out on the mercy seat in heaven to take, take away the sins of the people, and that he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he's making intercession for us, and that if we come to God on his terms through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we get as close to God as we possibly can be until He returns or we die to go with Him. Alright? You can't get closer. Now, you can be more like Jesus. You can learn, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, but you're as close to God as is possible because we have this great high priest that says, a better hope through which we draw near to God. And we see, we'll see that the same phrase We'll come up again in verse 25 when it talks about his ability to save us to the uttermost, <laughs> the King James says. Okay, I have some cross-references. Where shall we begin? Um, I want to hit some different people. We'll start in the back here. Diane, could you look up Psalm 73:28? Joanne, John 1:17, Judith. John 14 and verse 6, Daniel, Romans 3, 20 and 21, Romans 3, 20 and 21, uh, Pete, 
<laughs> there you go. Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16. And uh, Linda, Galatians 3.24. Norm, Ephesians 2.13-18. See, there's a lot of verses in the Bible about drawing near to God. Uh, Cladorus. Hebrews 4.16. And I don't know if you're, you're new. Dear sister, nice to meet you. Hebrews 10, 19-22. Okay, um, Psalm 73:28. The nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge. That was uh, Psalm 73. John 1 and verse 17, Joya. Yeah, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth are realized. See, when Moses went up Mount Sinai to draw near to God, one of the things that was spoken uh, as, as he was hid in the cleft of the rock and God passed by, were, it said there um, that the Lord is full of loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth. And that word uh, hesed, Loving kindness is one of the most important theological words in the Old Testament, and it's somewhat similar to the word grace. And so a lot of scholars think that that verse that Joanne read is a reference to Moses going up, drawing near to God, and hearing the Lord say, I am the Lord, full of loving kindness and truth. And then it says of Jesus Christ that he is full of grace and truth. So the law is, finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ, who brings God's very character and nature to visible expression in his person, full of grace and truth. So there's probably an allusion to Sinai there in John 1.17. Fantastic passage. Here's one most people probably know, John 14 and verse 6. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. So there's an exclusive claim of the gospel. That does, that's not popular today because people want to say there's many roads to God. <laughs> they, don't want to, they don't want to believe a, any kind of a claim that says there's only one way, but that's exactly what Jesus said. Okay, Romans 3, 20 and 21. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, Okay, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, the law is important. Do you know that? And it's important that people realize that there is a holy law of God that condemns sin, so that we know the need for a savior. But it says that, but then the righteousness that comes comes by faith, and the law and the prophets proclaim this righteousness that will come through Messiah, according to Paul in Romans three. Okay, Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, 
Okay? By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3.24 Very important function of the law. It's a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And as uh, has been pointed out, and we've discussed this here, John MacArthur wrote a whole book that, help, that helps us understand it called Hard to Believe. But as a matter of fact, when the Gospels preached, the law needs to be preached as well. Because it, people need to understand their lost condition to, to, in order to appreciate the need for a Savior. All right? And when the law is not preached with the gospel, you end up with this better living through Jesus idea. Sort of a life enhancement, what Ray Comfort calls life enhancement preaching. Yeah. Right. And the life enhancement idea is that basically if you become a Christian, you'll have, you'll have a better life. And what uh, Ray Comfort pointed out accurately is that it's basically selling people a bill of goods because we don't know the future. In a lot of cultures, even in America, sometimes when you come to Christ, you lose your job, you lose your family. You end up, you know, if somebody says we're going to have a better life, you're going to be happier, you're going to be more healthy and wealthy and you'll have more friends, all this wonderful thing. And then so they, okay, so they believe the gospel and then everybody rejects them and they get all this persecution. Uh, race is just like selling them a bill of goods because that's not what the gospel promises. It is better, but you can only... Yeah, exactly. It's only better if you appreciate the glory of the gospel and, and the value of fellowship. What's that? Well, actually, Paul said that, didn't he? Doesn't, he said if we hope in Christ in this life only, we are all men most miserable. Why does he say that? Well, because we're preaching the resurrection of the dead. There's no resurrection of the dead. We're foolish. We're false preachers. But I do believe that even at that, though, objectively, most I think all of us would not go back to what we had before, whatever it was. I wouldn't. I definitely like my gospel family better than my pack of sinner friends. And Jesus said that too. He says anybody that loses family, brothers, mothers, sisters, whatever, in this life will receive more because you get this big gospel family that God brings into your life, plus persecutions. Okay. But in the life to come, eternal life. Okay, so the next cross-reference is Ephesians 2, 13 to 18.
there, there, it says it all right there. We brought near. We have access. We're brought into this gospel family. And we're able to uh, come to God through Christ. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help Great verse, isn't it? Yeah. So God has help for us in our time of need. And we find grace from this throne of grace. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 10.19-22 Wow. Wow. A new and living way that we could draw near with confidence right into the very holiest place. Like I said, people are just aren't familiar enough with the book of Hebrews. Or they, I don't think they'd say some of the things they say or believe the things they believe. One person came and said to me, maybe I mentioned this last week, but she said, well, I, I'm going to another church now. And I said, well, that's fine. Uh, tell me about it. Well, the reason I'm going is that I'm going uh, to this uh, Jewish uh, Messianic congregation. And when I have this prayer shawl on, I feel closer to God. Well, I don't have anything against Messianic congregations. That, uh, that's not the problem. But the problem is the theological belief that somehow if I have this shawl on, that's going to get me closer to God. Yeah, or whatever. You know, you can't... Let me make a real bold claim. You can't go down to a store and buy something that's going to make you closer to God. Save maybe a Bible if you believe it. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's that? <laughs> candles? I don't know if candles are doing What about beads? I got, a, I got an email from somebody. It was interesting. I got an email from a CIC reader who said, I really liked your article on theophostics, but I have to take issue with one thing that you said. And he says, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I think you were very right out about your theophostic ministry article, but you shouldn't have said this. And I said, then I said something about anywhere from crystals to rosary beads, people, you know, I said something like that in there. The people are thinking that there are these things that are going to, that they can do that will make them closer to God. I, I mentioned that in my article. And he says, you shouldn't have said that about rosary beads. The, the, uh, then he explained his belief that these these were really just legitimate prayers and, and what have you. It's just a means. Did you used to have those? Oh, I did the nine first. They call it the nine first Fridays. And you would fast every Friday for nine months. You couldn't miss, so you had to start over. So I did six years, five years, like the Apostle Paul said. If you did it, when I did the first nine first Fridays fasting and going through the ritual, I felt so guilty, so I offered it up. For a problem to get him into heaven, see. And then I did the next five years, and I was supposed to have a plane made out of it because the Pope wears this scapular, and you wear the scapular, and then Mary will make sure that he talks to Jesus and gets you into heaven. But I never 
Yeah. Jesus said, the peace I give you pass on. So I couldn't get any peace. Nothing against Mary because her testimony is my soul without magnify the Lord my Savior. I say this Catholic that she could just slap you right in the face for coming to her instead of God the Son. And I never had any peace. But like you say, yesterday I was talking to him in Manor at 3 a.m. and he says, and his wife's a doctor, and they go, go in the Catholic so they go to another Catholic church wife because the preacher's real nice. I said, now you're a man that writes formulas on the wall, and you're the nicest guy in the world. Now what if you wrote a, a rotten formula that was a lie, and you had all these scientists there with you? What would they think of you? You're a nice guy, but we're going to go along with your formula that's false. They'd say, we don't care how nice you are. Your formula is not worth the darn, it's wrong. Well, I said, the same with the truth. You may not like the preacher, you may not like it, but if the scientist that isn't worth a dime gives the formula and it says two and two is four. You don't care about him. It's the formula. It's the truth. You don't go there because they're nice. You go there because they tell the truth. That's what you need, the truth. <laughs> Good. Everybody <laughs> switch in churches, in the Protestants, especially, well, I like this guy tonight. I like the music. I like this. Well, you know. <laughs> so, Dan, so, Dan, you're saying I'm not nice? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I totally agree. I totally agree. If I don't tell you the truth, I don't care how nice I am, don't listen to me. <laughs> the nicest preacher is the one that preaches the gospel. <laughs> oh, I. Okay, that, so the passage we read there says, by the blood of Jesus. And which is shed once for all. So there's no other way. You can't go down to a store, buy an object, and take it home and put it into use and get closer to God. I don't care if it's a prayer shawl or beads or candles or little um, things that you can put in your window that you know the light comes through and it makes you, you know. Yeah. It just no, no, there's no object that'll make you closer to God, and that's why it says uh, faith is the evidence of things not seen. We've talked about that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. They're, they tell, call it doing carpet time. Have you heard that phrase? <laughs> that came out of this. Yeah, the, the Toronto blessing. They go and they lay. They get they get slain in the power and they lay on the carpet for a long time and then they feel closer to God. But you know that you just have to preach the gospel. It's, just, it's a failure of faith. All of this is a failure of a faith in the sense, just like the Hebrews were being tempted. Because, you know, that real high priest that they still had, they still had the sacrifice, still had the temple. This was written before 70 A.D. They could go down and see the real high priest on the earth that they could talk to and see and watch his exemplary, uh, you know, garb and how wonderful that is. And Jesus is in heaven. They can't see him. And so they're going to go to the one they can see. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, that's apostasy. You can't. You, if you're going to draw near to God, you don't go to this guy that down here on the earth. You go to Jesus. Yeah. At the time, it seems to make sense, huh? I'm in the, you read Leviticus, and that's me. 
they're bringing a stronger argument. It's a stronger argument that we don't see that really is uh, yeah. uh, love. I think that that's why we have to so, week after week, emphasize the gospel in our services. Because it, the only antidote to being deceived is the gospel and then the, the words of the scriptures. And how many people understand this argument in the book of Hebrews about the Melchizedek priesthood and the, and the once for all atonement and the holy place in heaven and all the things in here? They probably never heard it. It's probably never been taught. And so, therefore, the Rodney Howard Browns come along and people just don't know any better. So that's why we need to get the gospel out. Well, let's go to verse 20 now of Hebrews 7. Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, in verse 21, for indeed they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. So here is a a difference of kind. The uh, The Levitical priests were priests because of their lineage because of their descendancy from Levi. Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And and one of the things that confirms this oath is Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever. This was spoken in eternity to Messiah and written down in the inspired Scripture in Psalm 110, verse 4. And therefore, it makes Jesus an eternal and superior and trustworthy high priest, better than the Levites. The only thing, the only thing, there's no reason to go back to the Levitical system according to this, and they're being tempted to do so. Yes, Karen. That's true. And you know, it's interesting about that. When I'm writing this article on means of grace, I got out the Catholic catechism to make sure I quoted from it. Because we have some Catholic readers, which is kind of surprising, but they're out there. And one in particular, this guy Gerald, every time he sees anything, he gives me an email. Why did you say that? You don't understand. So I always make sure I go to the actual primary source, which is I have there later. Yeah, Gerald keeps me honest about what I say about the Catholics. So I, I was reading in the Catechism, and you know what's interesting in the New Catechism? They've incorporated some of the, this language to try to make it seem like there's no difference. And so I was looking up the priesthood in the sacraments, in the sacramental system, and in, that, in the New Catholic Catechism, it affirms the priesthood of every believer. And it, and it says that actually Jesus is the high priest, and the Pope is like whoever he is, the vicar. Yeah. And the priesthood are special representatives, but all the people are priests. So they try to incorporate the stuff that the Protestants have been thrown at them since the, in, the new, in the new catechism. But the interesting thing, and that's where this Gerald comes after me, because he, he has that. And so I read the new catechism. But you know what? There's a huge lag. For one thing, those things are rarely preached to the people. I don't, and so if you talk to your average person going to the Catholic Church, they don't know about the priesthood of every believer. It's in the Catholic Catechism, which is amazing to me. But, but it's not preached or taught so nobody knows. If they don't get the Catechism out and read it, they wouldn't know it. <coughs> yeah, I know. I was looking that up in there too when I started looking up their idea of the sacraments. Well, anyhow, the point is there is a priesthood of every believer and one high priest, Jesus Christ, and we all have access to God through Him. 
Jesus is the eschatological priest, as they say in theology. Um, here's what uh, William uh, Lane says. It asserts categorically, categorically that the new priesthood is a the new priesthood is a divine institution unconditionally validated by God's solemn oath. The divine oath verifies the absolute reliability of the priesthood of Christ upon which the hopes of the Christian community anchored. The achievement of its purpose is assured. So we have a guarantee, and that's what the next verse goes on to say. But first, a couple cross-references. Carolyn, could you look up uh, uh, Malachi 3.6 and Denny? Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Malachi 3 and verse 6. Yeah, I, the Lord, change not. And see what it says in verse 21? The Lord has sworn and not will not change His mind. And it's interesting why it says that in Malachi 3.6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not destroyed. What does God not changing have to do with the people not being destroyed? What do you think? Yeah, he's, He called the, the, calling, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He called the patriarchs. It says that in Romans 11. He, he, he made an oath that these are his people, the Jews. And so, because he doesn't change, basically he's saying, the way you're acting, I would destroy you. All right? But I made a promise, and I don't change, so that's why you're not destroyed. Amen. Amen to that. Okay? Oh, the rainbow thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh. No, I didn't know that's why they had the rainbow. Well, you know what? Um, it's just proof of God's mercy, isn't it? That's like the atheist conventions where they where they'd have people get up and start cursing, blaspheming God, and they challenge God. They say, "If you are real, strike me dead now." And they go, "Well, you didn't do it. Now you all know there's no God." And I would say, "No. Now we all know that God is merciful. <laughs> he's not willing that any of you would perish, and would that all would come to repentance. And He's going to let that atheist have a few more years to repent, right, Dan?" <laughs> So, that's how that one goes. Alright, so God is reliable. He changes now. It says in, in the next one is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, Dennis. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Wow. Isn't that a beautiful? Yeah, that's in Lamentations 3, 22. Great is thy faithfulness. His loving kindness is new every morning. Every day we get to see the glory of God. 
the heavens declare the glory of God. And I was thinking about that when I was working on my sermon for this morning, which is in Philippians, and it talks about the ultimate purpose that God has in redeeming us and perfecting us and making us a people and ultimately bringing us to Himself at the marriage supper of the Lamb is to the praise of His glory. So, God's glory is being displayed continually both in general revelation and in his supernatural work in specific revelations through the gospel. Okay, let's go to verse 22, 722. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. A guarantee. We um, we all just talk about that. We have a guarantee in the Noahic covenant. When we see the sign of the rainbow... We have a guarantee that God will not again destroy the earth or mankind with a flood. So there's a solemn promise with a sign and a guarantee. And so here we have a guarantee of a better covenant. And the word uh, literally means guarantor. It's a a noun uh, for a person. And I had a note here that I, I wanted to read something about this. Um, here, here's what uh, William, William Lane says about that. But it may also refer to an individual, this guarantee. It may refer to an individual who offers his own life as the guarantor of another person. In this personal sense, the guarantor assumes a weightier responsibility than the mediator. The mediator steps into the gap between two parties, but the guarantor takes his person and his life on his word, um, through his death, exaltation, and installation as heavenly priest, Jesus provides security that the new and better covenant will not be annulled. God's new work of salvation, which has its beginning in the proclamation of Jesus, will necessarily be followed by its completion. So this word means that Jesus in his person is the guarantor of the fulfillment of the covenant. Because He has put His life on the line for us. And the idea, a similar idea in the Bible, and I don't know if I have this in my... Yeah, I have. To, I think this is my cross-reference. There was a, Something like that happened in the Bible uh, with the sons of Israel, when, they, when Benjamin... Yeah, so Leif, could you look this up, Isaiah... Oh, excuse me, uh, Genesis 43.9. Genesis 43.9, I think that's that story. And then uh, Tyler, Luke 22:20. Pretty interesting idea, the guarantor. And I can't think of anybody who'd rather have serve in that role than Jesus Christ. More advantageous. Okay. Okay. Uh, Genesis 43:9. Yeah. Uh, was that Judah that said that? Who said that? Reuben. Judah. Judah? Yeah, so Judah says, remember, um, Israel, Jacob had been, was Israel, already thought that he lost Joseph. Alright? The son that he loved most dearly. And now his brother Benjamin got stuck in Egypt. And so the brothers are saying, well, let us go get him. And Isaac says, if I lose him, my gray hair will go down to Sheol and sorrow. I'll never be comforted. And so uh, Judah says, and it says that Judah is 
the one through whom Messiah comes. So it's a foreshadowing of what Messiah being a surety. So Judas says, I'll be the surety. I'll put my life on the line. <clears throat> if I don't come back with Benjamin, let the guilt be on me forever. So he put his life on the line to guarantee as a surety that, that Benjamin would come back. And what a glorious story it is because ultimately not only did they, did they get Benjamin back, but Joseph whom they thought dead. And so here is a type of Christ who is the guarantee that we will come back alive. That will make it all the way to heaven and that God will come for us. So that's a very good illustration of what that word means there, guarantor, in his person. Okay, Luke 22, 20. Okay, then the new covenant in my blood, the fact that the blood of Jesus is the um, uh, blood of the covenant, right? The actual shed blood on the cross, where his life is laid down, is the blood of the covenant. And when we receive communion, we are looking to a sign of the covenant. In other words, we're remembering that the blood of Jesus is the uh, a sign of the covenant that we will actually, our sins are forgiven and that he will one day drink it anew in the kingdom with us. The, the, the wine in the Mary's Supper of the Lamb. So, I'm going to publish an article on means of grace that should be coming out in a week or two. And I'll be talking about all of this. I have a whole section there on communion and it is placed in the new covenant. And sadly, the communion is so covered with layers of church tradition, it's hard for people to see past the tradition to the glorious truths that are revealed in the Scripture about it. So I'm going to try to help to that end with this article by talking about means of grace. Okay, so the guarantor is Jesus himself. Hebrews 7.23, And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers, <coughs> excuse me, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Verse 24, but he, on the other hand, this is a contrast, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So now we have the many and the one. We have the many priests, the many Levitical priests. Um, according to my research, Joel Cephas said there had been 83 high priests, priests from the time of uh, Levi to the time, or the time of Aaron to the time of uh, 70 A.D., so they counted 70, 83 of these people. Plus there's the, all the ranks of priests. And so there are many numbers. But that doesn't make them superior because of numbers. The numbers were because of something lesser about them. The numbers were because they died. And so we had to get new ones. But because Jesus is eternal, and he's a high priest according to the eternal decree of God, as spoken in Psalm 110 verse 4, he abides forever, so there's only one. Forever and ever and ever for eternity, there's one priest that we need, and that's Jesus Christ. The one in the many. Now, there, um, Noel, could you look up Exodus 40 and verse 15? I think that that may be important. Exodus 40 and verse 15. Okay. Yep. And 
be anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Yeah, and the thing that's interesting is that someone might point out, well, they have a perpetual priesthood, but it's only through their generations. Okay, so it did say they would have a perpetual priesthood, but only through their generations. Whereas Jesus' priesthood is assured from all eternity, and it has no generational limitation. Well, that again, you have context. I think this will come up in a debate. By the way, I hope everybody goes to the debate on October 15th. Um, we're going to debate about whether Israel still has a future in God's plan. And when we have those debates, your question often comes up because people can look up in the Old Testament and find different passages where it says forever, but then we know that it didn't end up being forever. Okay, that something stopped or changed and it wasn't forever. So therefore, they'd say forever can't be taken literally. Right. The, see, the context has to determine. Because the covenant itself, the priesthood might continue right. in some way, but if you're supporting something that doesn't continue, it doesn't matter. Right. And so we'll have to talk about that. It's very important. For example, forever. Well, the land was given to Abraham and his descendants forever, right? But yet, throughout, from that promise in Genesis to this very day, there's a lot of history where they didn't have that land. Okay? They're there now. No, no, there were times where they were just like 135 A.D. during the Bar Kochiba revolt. The Romans came in and demolished Jerusalem and, and scattered the people, killed many, many Jews. That was far worse than 70 A.D. The worst pogrom. Well, there's a few Jews here and there, but they didn't own the land in the sense. They went to Egypt. There were times where it was just basically nothing. So the point didn't mean that they would actually have the land. They, they, in fact, they've never yet had the land as promised to Abraham from the great river, from the Nile to the Euphrates. They've never even had it once yet. So in that case, we'd say the land, the land promise is God's eternal promise. But as history unfolds, at times they rebelled and apostatized and were driven off the land. But then it was restored, but the promise still holds. Okay, so that's how I would understand that. But it, but so let's let me read something that might help answer Kara's question. This is from this uh, fantastic commentary, very technical but very useful. Uh, William Lane, according to Exodus forty fifteen in the Septuagint, Aaron and his sons had been appointed to the priesthood, aston ion, into the ages, which is a, the way the Greek says forever. But this unlimited expression is immediately qualified by the phrase into their respective generations. The Levitical priesthood was perpetuated only because provision had been made for a succession of priests to exercise. So, so there's a qualification right within the verse there. Now, we'd have to look at each case to determine when it means forever literally and when it may not. You'd have to look at the context. 
heavenly. I've never set foot on it, but it's there. Just yeah. like the Jews at one time, they haven't set foot there. That inheritance is theirs. I have an inheritance in heaven before the foundations of the, of the world was ever created that God had put there. It's there. I've never set foot there. But God made that promise for salvation, for eternal security. And it's there. It's kept in place for me. And all God's saying is, do my will uh, and build your home in heaven. Another thing Jesus suffered, he said in Matthew uh, uh, 22, 42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. That was God's emotions. He learned suffering through obedience, Jesus did. But nevertheless, he says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Where do we say that? In the Our Father. His will, what? Be done. be done. He obeyed the Father through emotional pain, suffering through Jesus. Jesus learned suffering through obedience, so do we, to the Father, so that we have this inheritance in heaven that's well-preserved. It's there. Yeah, that's Enjoy true. Enjoy it now. Rejoice <laughs> it now. You know the Jews are going to get their promised land. They can rejoice in heaven. And that's what God says. The thief, he says, come to my house. You don't have to come, Jesus. I know you'll do it. So the key is to be thankful ahead of time. Amen. It's reserved in heaven. In fact, we're going to find that in Hebrews here. Verse 24, but he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. All right, some more cross-references. <coughs> Excuse me, Pat. 1 Samuel 2.35, Paul F., Romans 6.9, Sam, Revelation 1.18. 1 Samuel 2.35, as soon as you find it. I want to at least get started on verse 25 because it's the best one. Yeah, it says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, you know, minister before me always. Is that a prophecy about Messiah? I think it is. Romans 6 and verse 9. Amen. Death has no dominion over Christ because he's been raised. And in Revelation 1.18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Amen. 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 <laughs> wow. Praise God. He's alive forevermore and he has the keys of death and hell. Let's look at verse 25. This is one of the more magnificent verses you're going to find anywhere. And... Certainly want to know this one. In this case, I like the King James. I have the New American Standard here, but maybe we want to, we might want to read it in a couple different versions, okay? Um, hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, the word forever there in the Greek means absolutely. It isn't a time modifier, so, Forever sounds like just talking about time, which certainly it is. It is forever, but it's more than just forever. It's a, it's a qualification of, of quality in a sense of absolute, in which case I think the King James actually has a better translation. Who has their King James? Lots of people. 
Go ahead. Somebody read it from the King James. No King James. Sam. Oh, King James. He is able to save them to the uttermost. And I think that if you think of looking it up in the Greek, I think to the uttermost is actually a better translation than forever. Because forever would make you think only of time. But to the uttermost in the sense of quality of the salvation in all of its aspects, both in time and in um, just the fact that it's a great, great salvation. So, okay. Yeah, no matter how, it doesn't matter how sinful we were, no matter how wretched and miserable we are. And uh, I was standing out here this morning and my friend Dylan came by and so I paid him ten bucks to rake all the stuff up so it looked nice out there. And so when I was paying him, and he's, he had three big bags of leaves, so I said, that's worth the money. So uh, when I was paying him, here this other guy comes up, says, got a dollar? And I said, well, you know, um, churches are here um, to tell people about God. Well, he says, if you're a good Christian, you'll give me your money. And I said, well, you know, um, I think what you need to realize is that you need to actually come in the building and seek God through Jesus Christ to get any good. Churches, If churches just give out money, it's not going to save anybody's soul. He goes, well, I need a dollar. So I said, all right, I'm going to give you a dollar, but I'm going to tell you this. What you need a lot worse is Jesus Christ. So I gave him a dollar. <laughs> we wouldn't have had to, but yes. To, to go before God. On behalf of the people. I would say that was one of the implications of the of the priesthood of all believers is that we have direct access to God and we can make intercession for one another. Not not unto salvation, but we can pray for people to be saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we definitely have we have uh, the keys of the kingdom in the sense of being uh, authorized to declare the terms by which people can come to God. Um, yes. Yeah. And hear the gospel. Yeah. yeah. What they need worse than anything is the gospel. There's another fellow that likes to sit out here and he sits out there almost every day. And finally I went down there the other day and I said, why are you always sitting here? And uh, he says, well, because it makes me feel closer to God. 
And so that I use that as a, you know, springboard. You know, I'm learning from Dan over here. He knows how to preach the gospel. I says, uh, well, you know, the building here isn't what makes anybody get close to God. This is just a building made out of stone. <laughs> yeah, you this Christian science building. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was built by Christian science back in 1914. Uh, but I said, you know, really what gets you close to God is the gospel. And I explained the gospel to him. And I said, you need to come inside and hear the word preached to be closer to God through the gospel and through the work of Jesus, not through the building. The building doesn't mean much. Well, he kind of just was, I don't know, wasn't tracking with me very well. But that's our mission is to bring the gospel. Now, I'm going to, we're going to go back and start with this verse because I have a lot of cross-references on Hebrews 7.25 about drawing near to God. And I think this is a profound concept. And the idea of Jesus continually to make intercession for us, that is also necessary not only to be understood and taught, but it's, it should inform us as far as our daily walk. is really what a fantastic privilege we have to go before the throne of grace where the one who paid the debt, our debt before God actually intercedes for us. Is that right, Ryan? <laughs> he likes that theme. Okay. So uh, time, we'll have some coffee and, and fellowship here, and then church starts at 1030. God bless you.